right. We are live and on the air. This is the First Impressions Podcast. I am one of your two normal hosts. I'm Kristen. And of course, joined by Maggie as well. Hello. But Kristen, is it fair to say that we're normal? Uh, Normal in the sense of we are on every podcast. So you probably expected to hear my voice. You probably aren't freaking out right now. Like this is an out of the ordinary uh, but you certainly don't think I'm normal as a person uh, at this point, I'm absolutely sure. But we are also very happy to be joined today by another guest. We have a guest this time, and we're super excited to introduce Ellie, Yay. who is an early listener, Hi. early <laughs> listener, friend of the podcast, and a clueless enthusiast who, when well, I think when she first messaged us on Facebook, she mentioned that she had done um, a paper on Clueless as an adaptation of Emma. And I was so intrigued by this. I was like, you know what? We have to hear more about this. I'm all about you hearing more about it. I'm psyched. I'm psyched to talk about it. Awesome. The podcast and scholar. (laughs) Minor scholar, like low key scholar. So go ahead and introduce yourself and your relationship to our Lord and Savior, Jane Austen. (laughs) Of course. Um, So hi, everyone. I'm Ellie. Um, I got interested in Austin actually originally through Bride and Prejudice. Um, that was the first adaptation that I ever saw. And I saw I love it that movie. Sorry. It's amazing. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Um, I saw it for the first time when I was 10. Um, and I was kind of obsessed with it in, I think, that way that, like, only children can be obsessed with something where I, like, watched it 50 times. I had the soundtrack. I like made all my 10 year old friends watch it, which in retrospect is very weird. (laughs) Um, And so I was really into that. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then a few years later, when I was in high school, I got really into Austin. Um, Sort of my dad was really into the movies. And so we would watch all the movies together and a lot of like sort of the BBC and the PBS adaptations um, and all of those. And then I sort of like, Years later, made the connection that I had been obsessed with this movie as a child. And then I also became obsessed with this person as an adult. And I was like, I think I was just made to be obsessed with Jade Austen. (laughs) I love that it was your dad, though. I know. I love the movies. That's really sweet. Did he have an English literature background or Um, He didn't. It's actually like super funny and I love it. Um, My mom's also super into Jane Austen and she was like very like read them all when she was a teenager and was really into them. But my dad just thinks they're really good stories. Um, And he's really, really into like all of the BBC and like PBS stuff. Like he loves like masterpiece mysteries and all of that. Um, And like Downton Abbey and that shit. And he just thought they were like really good stories. And I think that's like part of why as I got older and I sort of was into Jane Austen in other like kind of with other people and stuff, it took me a while to kind of recognize that it was very much a gendered thing and that, or that people saw her in this gendered light because I had grown up with this, like the sort of the main male figure in my life. Who's like very much like a man's man in a lot of ways. And is like really into sports and all that stuff being super into Austin. So like when guys would be like, that's girly, I'd be like, um, I don't think so. Excuse that's really me. interesting. I love that. <laughs> um, and then I guess I saw Clueless for the first time when I was like 13 or 14. And I think it was a bit of a first love kind of situation um, where like, or like love at first sight kind of situation where when I saw it, I just sort of like, I, I don't know. Cause I was thinking about it recently and I was trying to think about like whether or not it took me a while to love it. And I think that I just always thought it was this really good film and I always really enjoyed it. 
And then it wasn't until I got to college that I sort of became kind of independently really interested in looking at pop culture through an academic perspective, because I think it's really, really interesting. And I think that just in general, it's something that like we look at academically, but we kind of don't always. I think um, Gia Tolentino is a writer for The New Yorker and she does it right now. And I think that's really cool. And I'm just like generally super into pop culture. Like I'm into television and movies and I'm into kind of like movie history and stuff. So that's sort of where that kind of spread. Um, I love Gia Tolentino, by the way. I love her so much. She's legitimately one of, and like, I love a lot of the writers for the New Yorker. Um, I really love Emily Nussbaum too. I think I've read every review she's written for the New Yorker. I I had a a few years ago, I had like an internship. I didn't like that much. And I would just read those articles, but I didn't. (laughs) Uh, I jobs like that before, except for me, it was the television without pity boards. Oh, Um, now defunct twop. Um, Mm -hmm. But I spent a lot of time during an internship on the television without pity boards. Yeah. Yeah. I spent more time on Gawker media than I would like to admit, but Gia Talentier used to write write for them. And I definitely did follow her there as well. And she like everything she writes, I think is so interesting and so, well done and it's I've loved everything she's written about me has too. I she think that's all brilliant. Has she ever written anything about Austin to your knowledge? I don't think so. Oh, that's too um, bad. Because I think that if she had, I would like explode with happiness. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it would be all my worlds coming together. <laughs> Those Venn diagrams, it's like don't cross the streams in Ghostbusters. Like <laughs> right. they, they overlap <laughs> too much. Universal implode. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And then um, by, so my senior year of college, I got to write this sort of year long um, thesis paper. And I immediately knew that I wanted to do it about Austin just because she's somebody who I had been interested in for years. And I, I think like, especially in college, not that I'm not still obsessed, but like I was an English minor in college and you're kind of around people who like want to read and talk about books sort of in that environment more than you are always like in the rest of your life. Um, so it was kind of at like a, my, a peak then, and I knew it was going to be Austin and I picked, um, decided to talk about five different Austin adaptations. Um, and so I picked Clueless, Bridget Jones's Diary, Bride and Prejudice, the Jane Austen Book Club and the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. And I talked about all of them and sort of how they succeeded and failed. But ultimately my conclusion was just Clueless is the greatest one and it's better than the rest. (laughs) Nice. Basically, because somehow it manages to be a faithful adaptation without being uh, set in Regency England. Well, yeah. And one of my sort of big things that I talked about a lot in my paper um, was I kind of looked into this idea of what makes a good adaptation. And it's sort of this twofold thing where, you know, on the one hand, it needs to be um, it needs to accurately represent the work so that the fans won't, you know, put up their pitchforks and like hate it. Like it needs to sort of be faithful to, you know, the source material. But at the same time, it needs to be able to exist independently um, because you can't have an adaptation that only appeals to the readers of the book. I don't care how popular your book is, like even Harry Potter, it needs to be bringing other people in. Just, I mean, on its own, like from a financial perspective, it has to do that, but also it just needs to do that so that it's going to be able to have success and stuff like that. You need, it needs to be its independent work of art. There's actually a quote in um, the Clueless Bible, um, which is called <laughs> As If, and it's by Jen Cheney, which I, wow. sorry, it's a, 
No, go on. I her. She used to write for the post and now she's at Vulture and I just adore her. Oh my God. Well, I adore her because of this book. <laughs> um, but she has a part in her book, which we can talk about later. Um, but she talks about, she. there's a section about Clueless in it, or there's a section about Jane Austen in it. And there's an academic who is Dr. Juliet Wells, and this is on page 20. And she has a quote where she says, I think Clueless more than any other adaptation that I'm aware of is really an independent work of art. And she's like, it also works as an adaptation, but it doesn't need to sell itself as an adaptation, which I think is very evident in the fact that, you know, this is, it's been over 20 years since Clueless came out and it's been a TV show and it's been um, music videos and it's inspired fashion lines and a really popular soundtrack. And it's, they might be making a musical and they might be making well, well, a remake. What, 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 what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there have been talks of a Clueless musical. Oh, my. That would work really well, actually. Yeah, I think it's because they, like, did Mean Girls and this is, like, the next, like, yeah. girl movie. And they're like, oh, we can do that. Um, yeah, so it's this, it was, clear, like, you know, you can be somebody who's never, you don't know that um, Clueless is based off Emma. You've never even heard of Jane Austen because I have mm-hmm. written who love Clueless who've never heard of Jane Austen and you can still love Clueless and have it be your favorite movie. And so that's why I think it's able to be so successful is the fact that it does that. But then if you actually talk to like a lot of Austen scholars and people who study her from an academic perspective, they're all like, oh no, Clueless is fantastic. And one of the fun things about Clueless too is because it does stand on its own, but it takes Emma and it puts a veneer of new things on it that we can mm-hmm. also relate to. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I was just thinking today that, you know, this song, I Want to Be a Supermodel from the Clueless soundtrack. Love it. Which, if you're not familiar with it for the audience, is, you know, <laughs> the lyrics are like, I'm going to be a supermodel, oh, right? Like, and it's about how she's, how hot she's going to be, the singer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't score Emma... <laughs> set in Regency England with I want to be a supermodel. However, that's sort of like share in a nutshell, right? Mm-hmm. So like exactly. when, when you can overlay the, we're the kids in America, you know, mm-hmm. when you can overlay that and make pop culture connections with other things that are going on and mm-hmm. things that we recognize in our own life. There's something so satisfying about that. And there's something so validating about the thesis that we keep talking about over and over again, that people act this way. You know, these are real people that act this crazy, this silly way. And, you know, um, and uh, so it's true to the book and to the essence of what Austin is trying mm-hmm. to convey and yet very relatable to us, which makes it doubly awesome. Interject. I think that the success of Clueless, it speaks both to the quality of the filmmakers and the adaptation, but it also speaks to the quality of the source material as no, something I, that is mm-hmm. adaptable to a modern audience. I 100% agree completely. Um, And I think that that's like, those are sort of always my big points when I talk about it is that I think that it shows just how good the director um, and the woman who uh, wrote the adaptation, Amy Heckerling is, but that also Austin herself. Um, I think like it's sometimes really hard to describe why Clueless works so well, because a lot of times I'll just be like, well, it really gets the tone of Austin, which like doesn't sound very good on its own, but like she really was able to capture the tone of Austin. And I think she had this very good understanding of like, what about Austin? Like, what about the plot mattered? And what about the plot was like, not actually as important and could be changed? Because I think like, for me, I don't know about you guys, but I love Jane Austen for like a million 
fucking reasons. But the (laughs) number one thing for me is I really think she knew how to construct a plot and so well. Like, that is for me the thing I always go back to is that her plots are like so good and they're so like on the nail and like beat by beat by beat. And that is why we keep on telling these stories because they're so, you know, well constructed. And so so many things about uh, Emma came into Clueless. As you were saying, Amy Heckerling did a great job in picking out what mattered from the story and bringing it into a modern context. And one thing I think is so funny is that in the original Emma with that party where they're all trying to figure out who's going to, who's, mm-hmm. how are we going to get home and who's going to go with who and whatever is um, Amy Heckerling. When you read the, the book as if she makes a point, like when she read that in Emma, she's like, that's still what happens. You know, mm-hmm. you still have to figure out who, who needs to la- get off what exit on the freeway and who's closest to who and um, makes that a plot point in her uh, movie as well. And then does this hysterical thing where it's this Christmas party, right? And this is a a tangent. It took me so many times watching Clueless before I realized that um, the, uh, the other people not Cher and Elton, but um, Ty and the other gal who are going home. Mm -hmm. When you look at, her in the passenger seat. I think Ty is still holding a snowman. Oh yeah, that is still a lit Christmas decoration mm-hmm. plugged into the house that they are leaving. Oh. <laughs> you know, so it's like this is Christmas, and they're going to highlight it with this stu- super no, silly totally. visual gag. Um, so it's it's real, and it happens still today. And she used it as a plot device because it works as a plot device. Uh, no, definitely. And I think that like one of the examples that I always go back to, and it's mentioned a little bit in As If, but I think it's like something that is so brilliant and kind of like when I thought about this, it sort of made me, you know, re-examine how I looked at this movie and everything is the what they do with the character of Christian, um, who obviously in the book is Frank Churchill. And like, you know, Heckerlein has this really like smart thing where she recognizes that this character essentially exists to be someone that Emma's kind of into, uh, but that she ultimately is like, well, no, that's not going to happen. And she can't be with him. And in the book it's because he's engaged. And so essentially that character, like no matter which way you spring it, swing it, he's kind of an asshole. Like he's, (laughs) and I even sometimes enjoy him. Like there's the one adaptation, the one with Romola Garai. I think that's the 2009 uh, BBC one. In that version, I even enjoy him, but it's like, it's very hard to watch it and be like, well, this is a great guy all the way through. (laughs) He's not. um, So, you know, Clueless does this really smart thing where instead of making him like secretly engaged to someone, (laughs) and that is why he can't be available to share. And it allows this character to serve the exact same purpose that he serves in the book, but then he kind of gets to be redeemed and she actually gets to have a positive relationship with him and you don't leave the movie with a bat with him leaving like a bad taste in your mouth, which I just think is like so brilliant and smartly done. And another point is that he it never has to come out that he has a secret girlfriend. So there mm-hmm. is never anyone that Cher has to look at and be like, this woman is my enemy now. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> even even in even in the book, I don't think I mean, I think she uh, competes with Jerry Fairfax for attention, but she certainly never has any sexual jealousy. Um for Frank Churchill, because she doesn't know about it, right? Exactly. And so if they were to have introduced that element of secret girlfriend, uh, Mm -hmm. it would have sort of devalued Cher or made her jealous or whatever. And and Cher is way too confident. Emma is way too confident to ever let that happen to her. So from that standpoint, brilliant too. 
Mm-hmm. And then from a from a modern day standpoint, pop culture standpoint, how revolutionary was it to just, hey, this character's gay. It's part of the story. No big deal. You know, like, and um, he's not just a stereotype. He's not mm-hmm. just the shopping friend. He also actually rescues Ty when those guys are like hanging her over the balcony right at the mall, um, scaring the hell out of her. And so he's this fully realized character. He has, you know, this Rat Pack stuff going on, Mm -hmm. which is hysterical. Um, And I feel like the mistake is all hers. Like he's super flattering Mm -hmm. to her, but he's super flattery to her in the way a gay man would be. Like, you're fabulous. I love everything that's happening. And But he does – I don't think that he like purposefully – leads her on like no he does her chill does no, he, wants, he wants to watch spartacus yeah <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, and i i always think too there's the bit at the towards the end of the movie where she's kind of re-examining herself and she's re-examining all her friends and like i remember even before i had kind of like really like looked at clueless through this very like hyper academic lens i remember always being like it's really sweet that he's there and the fact that there's no hard feelings at all, that she learns that and she's just kind of like, you know what, it's not going to work out. And then they go and they become really good friends. And like at the very end of the movie, he's at that wedding and he's like hanging out with all of them and they're having a fun time. And like, I just think that that's so, that's, that's so nice. And like, I think very and what do you think about, um, I'm not sure if you've listened to our Arnie Pearlstein episode, which is like episode 10. So it was quite a while ago. I feel like I might've, and I read the section about him in that book. Among oh, the Among the Kristen was mm-hmm. so drunk in that episode, too. It's yes, I was. I don't think so you can weird. tell if you're listening, though. I don't think you can tell. That's like some insider. That's on your IMDb trivia. You Ooh, can definitely that's really drunk when we record that. <laughs> you can definitely tell because of how, well, I hope you can tell because of how obnoxious I am because I keep, <laughs> I keep interrupting in like super inopportune moments when everybody's like really into the point and I'm like, Tyler, like you know and i'm like refill my wine so i definitely know what i'm listening to tomorrow yeah no but um what do you think about um arnie's uh and i understand that you know this is not a widely adopted theory but arnie's feel that um frank churchill is actually gay himself um oh i completely forgot about that um so i i don't know i mean i think it's it's a, I think it's a solid possibility and a solid way to view it. I don't think that it's personally how I view it. I'm very, I, I'm typically very basic in sort of the way that I view a lot of the Austin novels. <laughs> you're, you're a basic Austin bitch. <laughs> like, and like in that, I, well, I view them all from a super feminist perspective because that's just sort of my reading of it all. Um, but I'm typically not, like when people sort of come out with me with like different readings and different sort of ways to like view them. I'm sometimes like, mm, I just don't think that's what she was intending, which is like kind of just me being very like typical. I read, um, oh God, I read this like a year ago. Oh, what was that book? Was it like, it wasn't Jane the Radical? Oh, The Secret Radical. Yes. I read Helena that Kelly. book. Um, and I hated it. Yeah. Um, I, I despise, well, I despise it for a couple of different reasons. One of the big ones is that she kind of, t- she talks about how, you know, Jane Austen is actually a radical as though like anyone who reads her books and studies her can't tell that she had like pretty progressive and like kind of like, you know, a radical for the time politics. I think that that kind of comes across and the way she's like, well, you know, people who have just watched the movies and I'm like, shut up woman, you think you're better than me. You know what? I like the movies and I like the books and you're allowed to like both miss. <laughs> 
Sorry. I have two things to say about this. And the first is that friend of the podcast, Lona Manning, uh, also read that book and was infuriated by it. And has she has a blog where she posted this like incensed takedown of all of these point by point by okay, point. Okay, you have things. to send it to me. because And like another thing that super pissed me off is that she talks about how, you know, I don't like people that like make adaptations and change things and stuff. And then every chapter starts with like a fictionalized account of like Jane Austen's oh, life. Oh, yeah. What the heck is that? Yes, yes. It just that like, like fictionalized on, accounts of Jane Austen's life are like my kryptonite. Like I cannot do it. Like Kevin brought that book home for me from the library, which is an extremely throw it sweet, at his head. Sweet mm-hmm. gesture. I didn't know what about uh, much about it at all, and I open it up, and like the first chapter is this like fictionalized account. Maybe it's not the first chapter. Yeah, this is like fictionalized account of Jane looking out at the <sighs> from the chapel door at the rain, and I'm like, uh, and I slammed it shut. I was like, yeah. I'm sorry, and I don't. she and she's on her high horse about people like interpreting her in different ways and how like, if you don't, you know, and it's what annoys me is that she like, will be like, well, no, if you're not reading it the way it was meant to be, you're not understanding. And then she'll pose these like very crazy theories. There's a theory about, I think it's either Emma or Mansfield Park where like it gets like super wacky. Like it is, I think it's wackier than some of Arnie's. Like it's very (laughs) out there. It's like very like, you know, go on. Say in constitutional law, She's a strict constructionist. <laughs> right. She doesn't believe she doesn't believe that the novels are living, breathing documents that can encompass the changing times. Are you saying that about me or about her? No, about her. Yeah. Well, um, that's, I, what, that's um, what we would say in our constitutional law um, class anyway. I, yeah. So I just it fucking bugs me. It's like I get on your high horse and then you come at me with these crazy theories, and it's like, woman. You know what? Stop telling me that you're better than me because I watch the movies. Also, well, here's the other favorite. thing. Here's the other thing too. I saw not to drop names. I saw Devony Loser, not Looser. I called her oh. Devony Loser, but that's the wrong way to pronounce her last name. But I saw I'm her today. So jealous. I saw that picture on Facebook. Yeah. And Boise, she came to a jazz and a tea, which is so cool of her. And one of the things she did is in, in response to a question from the audience, this is not something she came up, she came out with on her own but was asked about Austin's radical politics and said very, you know, very um, diplomatically, well, you know, that, that, you know, the secret radical and some of the things that were said in there, but we have to broaden our um, knowledge base here to read some of the other women authors of Mm -hmm. the time in Jane's day. And there was actually, I think um, an author named Mary Hayes, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote a book. I recognize that name. She wrote a book called a victim of prejudice, which Mm -hmm. actually um, Devony was saying probably did have Austin influence, mm-hmm. even just because of the title. But what yeah. that was, was about a fallen woman. And that Ooh. was sort of like a test of the Durbervilles, like critique. Oh, of, I love it. You know, and, and so, and, and Devony was saying, you know, Austin, we'll never know her true, her true feelings, right? What she was saying, she was trying to illustrate how our system stinks. And she was mm-hmm. a, a liberal. She was an abolitionist. She, she has sort of liberal feelings, but she didn't have a tear the patriarchy down Mm -hmm. with pitchforks and fire kind of a message. Uh, Or, you know, if you read that in there, you are really reading it in there. (laughs) Maybe she felt that way and didn't feel comfortable writing that. But, you know, when, if you just look at the writings, that, that really is not there. It's saying, you know, this is not good, but it Mm -hmm. is not saying we have to throw it all away. It's like, we, you know, the system sinks, but how are we going to change this? I think yeah. it's always a similar argument. You see a lot with Shakespeare, too, where people try to put their own 
political views and readings mm-hmm. into, or they use the text of his plays to try to figure out like, oh, well, what did Shakespeare himself really think? What were his political <laughs> views? And it's just really dangerous to do that kind of thing. I think you can overstep and then it, it's kind of like, what is it they say in, in science? You know, the act of observation mm-hmm. is itself changing. Yes. Yeah, I'm no, I can to observe. Though mm-hmm. no, I completely agree. And I think that it... I think it's very murky when you try and get to this place and you try and say, well, she would think this and she would think that. And it's like, well, she doesn't know her. You don't know her. You don't know years. And like, I, like, I think I, um, speaking of among the J nights, I, that book was like very sort of formative for me in that before I read it, I had my reading of Austin. Like I do read her from a feminist perspective. And I think part of that is just because I'm feminist and I do love that. Like a lot of her books are about women who are, in a time period where they have to marry and that's their only ticket and they're sort of, you know, being forced into the system and it's about them navigating it. And like, I think my reading is feminist, but before I read that book, I was kind of like, well, that's the only way you can see her. And anyone who doesn't see her that way is stupid. And that book was like really great about showing that people read her in all these different ways and no one person is actually correct because we don't fucking know because she's dead. People are so defensive of their own Austin, Mm -hmm. and I am included, and I think I was just, I was going through so much today at the Jasna Tea, and I was thinking of this, and this is really going into the weeds now, but I'm protective of my Austin, and persuasion, it's, you know, it was discussed today, uh, it was the topic of Devonese talk, because it is, Mm -hmm. I believe, the 200th anniversary of its publication. Great book, love it. Persuasion is the topic. It has never been my favorite. I almost see it as like a black sheep of sorts mm-hmm. because it doesn't, it's not my Austin, right? Yeah. Getting into the deepness of the emotions, the autumnal and the sadness, it's like, that's a place I don't want to go and I would shy mm-hmm. away from. Um, and the second thing I realized about persuasion is I was sitting there in the audience and really wanted to ask a question like, Demi, what do you think about how Frederick Wentworth is a dick? Because I think he's a dick. And I was all set to make my, oh my, my point. I like him. Um, I know he's a dick, but I like him. No, but here's why he's an extra, extra dick, right? Oh, oh so God. this just came to me today. So yeah, he comes back into town. He sees this woman that he used to love without thinking about what her feelings currently are. He pl- proceeds to flash himself and parade himself around in his wealth and how desirable he is. And he is courting these beautiful young women right in front of her eyes. The thing that makes that even worse, though, is from a feminist perspective, Anne has nothing. She can do nothing. She can earn no money. If nobody wants to marry her, she is stuck, right? She's out of her prime. And he knows all of this. He's well aware that as a man, he has everything, all the power, all the future ahead of him, and she has nothing. She's just faded. And so no matter how he feels, oh, you broke my heart, you know, his tender, tender, broken heart, you know, tender, tender feelings, because of the power structure of that society, what he is has doing, what he is doing, what he knows he's doing is deeply cruel because he has all the power and she has none. So right? I know all of this intellectually um, and you're, you're totally, you're totally right. I'm still a romantic though. And I still like the speech he gives where he talks about how he loves her and how I pine for her. I know I, you're correct on an intellectual level, but I am such a romantic and I'm just like, but he writes her the pretty letter. On that I'd note, like okay. to offer a rebuttal. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Let me say one thing, though. And, I, and this is to agree with Ellie and show that I'm also susceptible to that argument. <laughs> Today at the tea, everybody got a folded up letter, a piece of parchment, like it could have been a letter from Austin's oh. time. 
and it said Miss A.E. on the outside of it. And we were like, what is this? And so we opened it up. It was all, you know, um, carefully folded in this intricate way. And we opened it up and it said, I can listen no longer in silence. And it was a full verbatim copy in cursive of Frederick Wentworth's letter to Anne Elliot. And I was like, almost, I I almost cried. I was like, oh my God, I'm holding the letter. (laughs) There's a bit in Persuasion, and and I, I should say that like the first film I saw of Persuasion was the oh god the BBC one with I'm forgetting her name but she just won an Oscar Amanda for The Shape Roots. of Water. Is that um, no? You're so you're talking about Sally Hawkins. Sally Hawkins, and I can't remember who plays Wentworth, but he's blonde and he's very good looking. Yeah, I know. Um, and Henry and, Jones. Yeah, so yes, him. So that's who I always like. That's my vision of Wentworth. But there's a scene in the book where she is playing the piano and she's like resigned to the fact she's like, he doesn't love me anymore and that's fine. And I'm going to pine for him, whatever. He's dancing with those girls. And like, she's like, he's over me. He doesn't care. But the fact that in actuality, he like can't think of anyone else. And he's like pining for her so desperately. And he's like, there's no way that she loves me anymore. And like, I have to get over it. And like the fact that they're both going through that. And Kristen, you are so right about your point. And like, it's (laughs) not feminist and she is an asshole. That scene, I cry every time I read it and every time I watch it and my romantic heart like just falls over itself. Okay, but when do I get to offer my rebuttal? Now, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. (laughs) She's mad at me, not you, Allie. Don't worry. (laughs) No, I'm not really mad. I'm just sitting here quietly drinking my Prosecco. I'm sorry. I know I interrupt all the time. I just had to My rebuttal is that that's what someone would do. (laughs) No, it's not. If you have your heart broken, especially if you're a dude. That's what you would do, Kristen. You would try to make the person jealous. Absolutely not. That's how the plot has to work, though. Decent people would not do that. Okay, back to Clueless, because that's what we're supposed to be talking about. Okay, we're going to talk about this more, because I actually think think it is unfair of you to say, because someone gives in to a... to say that they are not a decent person, because maybe they temporarily... Throw uh, that old man jealousy. out. <laughs> Throw that old um, man out. Okay, getting back to you have too high standards is what I'm saying. Ah! You um, don't allow, you don't make you don't make allowances for differences of situation and temper. temper yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, checkmate, Maggie. You are, okay. you are you checkmate. Okay, you I, I was really okay, back to clueless. We need to do okay, Kristen, file this way for future reference. We need to do an all Wentworth discussion. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Well, oh, you managed to persuade me, uh, no pun intended, the no, last time we did persuade, yes, the last time we did persuasion, by the end of the second episode, we did, I was a convert. I was over to your side, mm-hmm. and now I have drifted back again. <laughs> I will say I'm a big persuasion fan, and I, I actually have a point I was going to make about it later, but it's actually podcast related, so like we'll, we'll wait till it comes up naturally. I just think that someone can act like a dick without being a total dick. I agree. Like I am not perfect either. Sometimes I act like a dick mm-hmm. and hopefully I would hope that I'm not actually. And in 200 years, people won't be to cut that Margaret Riley. What a dick. Oh yeah. <laughs> like acting like a dick in the moment is much different than acting like a dick, hardcore stone cold dick for weeks on end. Mm, I don't know. I we just, all go through phases. I, he, I, I don't know. I like, I, I'm a very big romantic. And like, I think that that is part of why 
I love Jane Austen, which I know is like sort of a people get in all these discussions about whether or not she was a romance novelist and stuff like that. I kind of actually think she was, but I don't see it as a bad thing because I love a good romance. Well, like you were saying about being gendered, like when we and how people, pop culture, especially pop culture media for women is often Mm -hmm. discounted and thought of as not being of actual intellectual worth. Well, no, Um, and like my whole thing is that I always think about it's like, you know, most people, most humans have romantic relationships in their life. So I don't understand why we're pretending that like romance is just a woman's genre. It's like everybody like falls in love and does that shit though. Like, Well, Ellie, I have a clueless question for you. Okay, let's get back to the point. So when I was rewatching the movie recently, the part mm-hmm. that I found very, what was very difficult to watch was actually the scene where she's in the car with Elton and he puts the moves on her mm-hmm. and keeps putting the moves on her. And I'm just, it had been a while since I had watched it. And Cher has no fear in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I just, I guess I'm just curious if that is something you have mentioned in your feminist read of it, how like that situation could have easily gone even worse than him just like kicking her out of his car. Like I was like, if that movie had been made now, she would have been like, a, it would have been a, a rape attempt. <laughs> well, it's actually so interesting you bring that up because again, so I watched the movie again tonight and I've, I've seen it 50 million times, but as I was watching it, it occurred to me that like, this is probably the first time I've watched it since the wine scene stuff. And mm-hmm. I had a completely different read on see- that scene than I've ever had before in that I would watch it before. And like, obviously he's being an asshole and I was kind of like, whatever, he's being a dick, but like watching it today, I was like the way that he's putting them on her, the way that she's so clearly into it to the point where she gets out of the car and then he abandons her yeah. in the middle of fucking nowhere where she, is it cool that I curse on here, by the way? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Cool. We have a, we have, we have a, um, uh, what is it? It's like the, the language tag that we put explicit. on. Explicit. We're tagged yeah. explicit okay. on iTunes. So no one can complain. Okay, cool. It, it, it occurred to me that I've been cursing like crazy and I didn't it's know fine. that was we do kosher. It um, but, uh, what's it called? So the fact that he, you know, abandons her in the middle of nowhere to the point where she gets robbed because she's in a very sketchy, creepy place in the middle of the night. My reading on it was very, very different. And I haven't like thought about it obviously a ton, but I think that it is sort of another thing to re-examine in this area in that if that was made today, that would be like a whole plot point as it should be, because the fact that he did that was terrible. But I honestly like, when I used to watch it, it like never occurred to me. Like I never thought about it. I'm always not sure if her, I mean, she's not blase. Like she's, especially when that guy sticks the gun in her face, like she's really Mm -hmm. afraid, but she still is kind of like, Oh, my outfit, you know? And I don't know if that's because she's just kind of a Banff or she doesn't think anything too bad can ever actually happen to her. Or if she just has that extreme, like superhero confidence Mm -hmm. where it's like, I can, resolve all of these situations i don't know like um, it's just watching that scene was really interesting mm-hmm. from a tw- 20, 2018 <laughs> and she yeah, definitely she doesn't milk it like ty milks mm-hmm. her yeah it's like oh it happened it's fine well, and then there's the scene later on where ty's milky it and and shares like well you know when i was held at gunpoint and everyone's like yeah. sure shut up yeah. um, <laughs> but no i think that it's interesting and like as much as i would like it to be like yeah you know she's being a strong feminist and like all this stuff. I think that really it probably has to do, if we're going to look at it realistically, she's 
a rich white girl who probably doesn't have bad things happen to her too much. And like, even when it happens, she's kind of like, well, nothing really that bad is going to happen because I'm rich and I've never had to kind of consider these, these really bad things that could happen. If that makes sense. Like, it's kind of like I, her reaction seems appropriate for her character. I think you were going to talk about like how Clueless did and what other pieces of art it it inspired. And yeah. um, And that was a big thing for me in that I think, well, I mean that I shouldn't say a big thing for me, but like, that's another reason why I kind of look at it as this very successful film. And like, probably I would say I actually don't have the numbers in front of me. So I don't know if it was financially the best adaptation, although it wouldn't surprise me just considering how monumentally popular it is. But the fact that it was this story that sort of inspired this wave of awesome stuff to come um, and also just like movies in general to come. So it came at this period when like, obviously, uh, Sense and Sensibility had come out recently and like this was right around the time that the um, 95 Pride and Prejudice was coming out. Um, so obviously Austin things were happening, but I think that definitely Clueless was a really big influence in sort of propelling that forward. And also the fact that this this is like kind of like parallel to it is the fact that Clueless went on to inspire every teen movie mm-hmm. that is like, based on a classic work of literature. And I think I sent um, you guys like a full list, which I don't know if I have right in front of me, mm-hmm. but it's a solid like 10 films that came out, you know, in the next decade. All of those go back to Clueless because Clueless was wildly popular and it was before all of them. That's really, do you think that also, I'm trying to think before Clueless, movies that featured a teenage female protagonist that were successful. I can think of, I mean, you had like your little kind of 80s comedies, but I don't think they were like phenomenons like Clueless was. I guess Heathers, but that's super dark, right? Well, and Heathers was also very much like kind of in satire. Yeah. And I mean, I think I actually wrote about this a little bit in my paper originally in that it was kind of like an interesting time for teen movies in that you had had your John Hughes stuff of the 80s, which was very like sincere and earnest. And then you had Heathers, which is a complete, like, you know, sort of reaction to that. And I personally love Heathers. It's another one of my favorite movies. I just think it's great. And Clueless was like, you know, a few years later, it was, I don't know, I think Heathers was like 88 or 89 and Clueless was 95. And there hadn't been like a ton of sort of successful teen movies and also successful teen movies about women mm-hmm. since then. And right. Clueless was very, like, it was this super original thing. Um, it's interesting in as if, and if you ever watch like any like of the like behind the scenes clueless things, they talk about like just in terms of like the fashion as one example, how like they didn't base the fashion in the movie on existing fashion at the time, at least of like the main characters. That was sort of an original thing they came at out with or up with. And then it inspired yeah. what was like trendy and fashionable throughout the 90s. Like when we see like, you know, girls in like yellow plaid and stuff, we think like of the 90s. And really that's just clueless. And the woman's name was Mona May who came up with all of the- um, Well, Cher wouldn't be following trends. Cher would be setting trends. Well, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 think- I have your list of uh, movies, if you'd like me to quickly oh, read them. Go for it. Movies in the next uh, years that are inspired by- what am I trying to say? Like classic works of literature. Mm-hmm. So there was Romeo yeah. and Juliet in 1996. Oh, God. Which is, which oh that one's God. debatable because it's so soon after. And it like, it, it does have the text. So that one I sort of say with like an asterisk. 
that cruel intentions. Oh, oh yeah. Oh dang. Based on this Lilaysian okay, cruel intentions is my jam. <laughs> Freshman <laughs> year of college. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> In 1999, uh, mm-hmm. 10 Things I Hate About You, also, yes. which was based love- on, and I did not know this, The Taming, the Taming of the Shrew. Kristen, I do not know that. I and- haven't seen the movie either, so. Oh. Yeah. It, is, it is so good. And I will say 10 Things I Hate About You, I think, is a really good example of taking a play that is super misogynistic and is, like, in the fabric of the play, is very sexist and anti-woman, and turning it into, like, a feminist retelling. Um, means- and it's awesome. That main character, so Vulture did a, like, I think it was Vulture, or maybe it was Bustle, actually, of, like, the mm-hmm. most feminist rom-com lead mm-hmm. characters, and that main character was the number one most feminist mm-hmm. rom-com She's like a total girl. I love it. Yeah, she's all about that. Oh, Kristen, mm-hmm. you got to watch that movie. You'll love it. Right. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> Okay, she, fine. Okay. She's all that. <laughs> she's all that 1999 oh, which it was my fair lady which i don't know i mean i saw my fair lady at uh, the idaho shakespeare festival yes i know it's not shakespeare but they all they also do non-shakespeare things but i saw it and it is horrible and the fair lady or pig so abusive and horrifying oh, yeah. yeah so yeah so i guess that's another kind of retelling where i assume yeah. that she's not emotionally abused by her mentor I, have to I don't think so. I've, I don't anybody, know if I've ever seen it all the way through. Can anybody be emotionally abused by Freddie Prinze Jr.? Ah. That's a fair point. That's <laughs> legit. Um, whatever it takes, uh, which I, uh, this I did not know, is a Cyrano de Bergerac uh, adaptation. I didn't know it either. I'm going to be honest. Most of these I knew. And then I Googled like that like famous rom-coms based on classic works. And that came up. And I was like, okay. Never heard all of right. it. Flesh the list out then. And then, oh, in 2001 was based on Othello. Right, yeah. Get Over It was based on the Midsummer Night's Dream. Never heard of it. It was, I think it had Kristen Dunst in sort of her bring it on period. <gasps> okay. She's the Man, which was Twelfth Night. Adaptation. Is that the one with Amanda Bynes? Mm-hmm. Okay, that movie is genuinely cute. I'm just putting Very it out cute. there. Yes. And Easy A, which is an adaptation yes. of the Scarlet Letter in 2010. Emma Stone, star-making vehicle. Oh, man. But, <laughs> but yeah. And I, I think it's fair to say, and this is me saying it, I just think if Clueless hadn't happened and hadn't been as successful, I don't think there's any way that that trend would have happened. I think, I think that's, that's fair. And, yeah. um, you know, I was, uh, I had, was just reading some anecdote where um, Gwyneth was uh, being interviewed <sighs> about her, oh her my Emma God. adaptation. Is this my favorite interview ever, which I have in front of me. And I All can't right, you, so, you talk about it. Okay, so I have a lot of feelings about this particular interview. Part of it is because I um, hate Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm. <laughs> very validating for that. Um, but so this is on page 15 of As If, if you would, readers like to read it home. Um, and it says, in a New York Magazine interview in July of 1996, uh, when Paltrow was promoting her Emma, she spoke dismissively of the awareness clues had already raised around Austin's novel. I think it's sad, she said, letting up her first camel, that America's first cultural reference for this movie will be clueless. I mean, honestly. Isn't you imagine- Paltrow a living Emma? Like, doesn't she not even need to act, like, without the self-awareness that Emma gains at the end of the book, isn't she basically just living that life? You know, she, she, she did just, say recently that she invented yoga. 
Oh my God. Well, did, and the weirdest thing about the interview is like she takes a drag on a cigarette. Like, hello, goop, what health and wellness. That's, that's how true. she stays so skinny. Used to be. The best oh. part of that section in the book, though, is that she, she said, you know, she says, I mean, honestly. And then the writer is like, well, honestly, here's a bunch of scholars that think Clueless is awesome. And it oh. makes me very happy. Ha! Oh. Ah. Poor, I feel sorry. I, I mean, I don't feel sorry for Gwyneth Paltrow, obviously, but I feel sorry for her lack of self-awareness. Yeah. You feel just like you feel sorry for Emma's lack of self-awareness. Yeah, except Emma. Well, is Emma likable? I don't know. This is well, gone way off the rails. Here's the thing, too. And I, I forget I forget if I talked about you about this with you on podcast or off podcast, but would I like Emma more if um, she hadn't been played by Gwyneth, because I don't like her, but I also, there are a lot of things about Gwyneth that like Ellie was saying, they just really get under my skin. And she was per- portrayed much more sympathetically by Ramona Garai. And if so, if mm-hmm. I had seen that mm-hmm. adaptation first, and certainly I adore Cher, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Who has much, I, much softer edge. Well, it's interesting. There's a bit of as if where Alicia Silverstone, who plays Cher, talks about reading the script for the first time and talks about like being like, I can't imagine anyone liking this character. Huh. Um, and then of course, but of course that's when she was on paper and when she was, you know, based on Emma. And so obviously she took it and ran with it. But I don't know. I think Emma's not always likable, but I'm I'm kind of cool with it. I'm like, yeah, I I don't think female characters always need to be likable. That's part of, that's yeah. the thing that like took me a while to recognize actually with Mansfield Park, which that's I- an excellent point, Ellie. Which I hated for years. I did not like Mansfield Park. I liked the 1999 adaptation that completely changed it, but I didn't like the book. And then I took a Jane Austen class when I was in college and we read Mansfield Park again. And I- remember being, you know, there was sort of this discussion of Fanny and like why she's not likable and all this stuff. And I sort of came to this realization that it's like, no, she's not likable and that's fine. Like, I mean, not to get all like when a man does it because, (laughs) but like there are male characters all the time who are not likable and who are assholes and we're like kind of into it. Yeah, And so I'm, that's kind of like, I feel like Emma's my Walter White. Like I'm like, She's like not always a good person, but like I still I like her. I'm on her side. Actually, she that's not true. She's not likable and she's not powerful. I mean, we're attracted and drawn mm-hmm. to these anti-heroes who yes. are mysterious and full of power, like the mysterious, mm-hmm. misunderstood superhero yes. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But she's not powerful. And so we have this, you know, it's this double strike where we're like, well, what is there to her? You know, and it's like a lot of people mm-hmm. are just not. I thought you were gonna say. That it was my brilliant podcast, Bill <laughs> Park, that changed your mind. I still don't. I, I did listen parts. to that, and that helped. But I think it was in. It was. I remember there was like a specific discussion in this class, and a lot of people sort of talking about her being nervous and how, like, well, you know, I relate to that and like all this stuff. And I just remember being like, maybe she's not so bad. And also, there was one person in the class who really hated her and kind of like. Through that, I actually ended up sort of like being on her side. I kind of been like, well, wait a second. And so that's, it took time though. I still don't really like Bansville Park though. I'm still, I would never like, never my Austin book that I'm going to choose to read. But oh, you know, it's okay, I appreciate it. It's okay. I was at the tea today and the lady sitting next to me asked me what my favorite book was. And I said Mansfield Park. And she was like, no one has ever said <laughs> that to me before. 
<laughs> oh my god! Did you like finger snap in her face and was like, "Well, they have now." Bitch. No, but I did tell this story. I did tell the anecdote about Whit Stillman saying I was yeah. right and me screaming in the back of the theater and wooing for Mansfield. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, I just want to say for the record, I very much enjoy the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma movie. I think that I can separate the art from the artist. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. That seems uh, that's mature of you. Okay. Oh, thank you, Ellie. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't get accused of that very often. No, it's not a word often. It just occurred to me as I was saying it that that was very condescending. So I apologize. Um, oh, that's okay. I liked it. <laughs> it was joking. You can't see my face, so you can't tell that I'm being jokey, guys. That's okay. I liked um, it. I'm, I like I'm also, it. I'm, I'm very susceptible to flattery. Oh, well, there you go. No, I like it too. I I mean, it was, I think the first Emma that I ever saw, except for Clueless. I, I'm sure I saw Clueless before that. But it was my definitely my first like introduction to that novel. Um, So in that way, I enjoy it. But I think on like a, like an actual like intellectual adaptation level, I prefer the Marola Garai one just because I like her and I like Johnny Lee Miller. Um, And this, and I mean- that final scene of Emma where he talks about how he's in love. That scene does a lot for me. I'm, oh God, that one line, I just, it's a lot. I need to rewatch that one. Compare and contrast the pros and cons of Johnny mm. Lee Miller versus Paul Rudd as a knightly. They are both short. Paul <laughs> Rudd all the way. Can we both, can we both, can we just acknowledge that Johnny Lee Miller is also short with like very compact? Okay. When I see him and Paul Rudd, they are both small men that are just, I don't, what am I trying to say? Like their heads are weirdly shaped. Oh my God. I will say. Does um, anybody feel me on this? Is it just me? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Paul Rudd is, is definitely for me. And I think particularly him in that he kind of has like a, like a teen dream thing, only he's not a teenager. He's a a freshman in college. Well, you (laughs) know what? He's age appropriate for me. So he very much in that film. I am, I think I prefer Paul over Johnny Lee Miller. Although I love the, oh God, the one line, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it is like one of my favorite lines of literature. Uh, It's, it's great. But the the, the thing about Johnny Lee Miller is I, I do not like him in Mansfield Park. I do not like him in Emma. Well, Edmund's a dick. I don't buy uh, Johnny Lee Miller in the setting of a Regency film. And I've always asked myself, why can't I see him as the character and not as the actor? And I finally figured it out. Oh, what is it? He's being cast in these Regency films, but either he can't or won't grow his hair into a Regency hairstyle. So he's walking around with this super short 90s, uh, the 2000s, you know, haircut no, trying to pretend like he he fits in in a regency setting and he Kristen, just doesn't and that's why he always sticks out like a sore thumb to me it's because his head is weird maybe it's because they can't they maybe. can't style his hair like that because his odd shaped head i mean can they not put a wig on him i mean i know the oh. wig didn't do great things okay can, can just remember you're <laughs> 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 also, he's so toothy and that when he just like stands up and starts singing i just oh, die <laughs> i just die every i have time. never oh, considered I, this is a new perspective for, i think it might be because the first time i ever saw johnny lee miller in anything it was in it was probably an mr mansfield or something so like i just automatically like associate him with period dramas but this is this is turning my head I think of him as I'm right though, right? Like no Regency guy would have super short, close cropped hair. Maybe That's a fair likes. point. I don't I don't know that um I mean, is he 
British? Is there something yeah. weird with his he's accent? British. Okay, so his accent is, is is legit, and I'm just being yeah. super picky. No, his accent is where he was married to Angelina Jolie for a while. Fun fact. Shut what? up. She, I think he was her first husband. Holy shit. No fucking way. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. It changes your perspective on yeah, it. Yeah, it does. He's a lot. Wow. I don't even know what to make of that. That's crazy. He, he just looks he very like, cool. I think he was pre-her with, oh, God, the old guy she was with. Billy Bob Thornton. Bill, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that was just, I think that Johnny Lee Miller just looks very modern. His yeah, face. He very modern. He's Do you a modern. know what I mean? Like some yeah. people look like they are from, they are born to play other eras. But Johnny Lee Miller just has a very modern looking face. Like the guy who plays Jasper in the Twilight movies, I always thought was born looking like a Confederate soldier. Because that's who he's supposed that's when he, the era he was supposed to have been turned in. Okay, never mind. Wow, wow Kristen. I, I wow. <laughs> you know what? This is, this has become this a different podcast. Fair. Who are you? I have, I have considered my face before and have been like, I actually would have done very well during the Regency era, just like physically. Oh, um, I would have died. And those Empire Waist dresses are very flattering on me. I, I would know, have I, died of childbirth at like 14, probably. Let's just have wow. no waist at all. Let's just, just let's just have no waist at all. Just let it below and nobody can know what's under there. And I'm I am pregnant all, all the time I just, those Empire Waist. I think Empire Waist would look good on me and I have the hair... Um, and I think that I would have excelled physically in no other aspect would I have excelled, but physically I would have, I would have been doing good, you know? Yeah. I'm like legit sitting here thinking like, when would I, I am like very busty mm-hmm. and hourglassy. So definitely corset time. Maybe like a Elis- maybe like Tudor. You know what you are is like a barmaid, like an Irish barmaid. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. I'm not, I'm not an aristocrat. I just see you with a very low cut bussier thing and two oh. huge pints of ale. Totally. I can <laughs> see that. Vista always says a good peasant breeding stock. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is odd. I feel like I would have been either Regency or I would be to, Coin a phrase from clues, I would have been like a Botticelli chick because I have the hair. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Or um, what is the uh, 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 what's the painting period where it's like the very like kind of large? Uh, what am I trying to say? Pre-Raphaelite. Oh, okay. this is so, very interesting, but not really. The thing that makes me think of though is clueless. Uh, the I was reading about the vocabulary used in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you just made me think of the whole Monet versus Baldwin versus <laughs> kind of thing. So some of that was Amy Heckerling uh, overhearing actual high school students. But I think some of it was a flight of fancy on her part. Oh, yeah. And I think <laughs> calling people Baldwins, uh, we all immediately know what that means, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now- but uh, I don't know that it was actual slang. But Amy Heckerling was apparently obsessed with slang like in her like mm-hmm. personal past. And I guess when you think about fast times at Ridgemont high and the, like, isn't that one of the one where it's like, all yeah, right. That was, I think the, and I'm pretty sure she did that. And then she did some like, Oh, I can't remember what, but she had done some like very big movie in the like late eighties, early nineties. It was very like, kind of like a commercialized dumb movie. Uh, was it look who's talking? Cause I fucking love that movie. Yes, it was look who's talking. Okay, I love that seen- movie so much. <laughs> it's embarrassing how much I like that movie. <laughs> um, but I think that the language 
of Clueless is one of the reasons why it was so successful. That slang is, I mean, it's infinitely quotable, right? Mm -hmm. What's so funny is that Emma would have totally disdained to use slang in any form. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So her type of slang is just ultra correctness. Right. Yes. Super correct grammar. Well, like when when um, when um, Augusta Hawkins comes to town as the next Mrs. Elton, and she's tossing around this "Oh, Mister E, Oh, my caro sposo," mm -hmm. that's like de classe, right? That's her being pert and underbred and just embarrassing. Whereas <laughs> Cher is walking around and speaking the lingo of her time, where it would probably be, you know. But the interesting thing about that too is she does also have pet, very pedigreed vocabulary. Yes, well, like, she does, you know, and I. I think it's a lot of them sort of playing as grown-ups, which I think is a theme throughout the movie. Um, there's the one scene where they're he says that too. Yeah, I where they're like grown-ups. Mm -hmm, yeah, where they're <laughs> that's a very good time impression. Um, where they're walking around school and um, Murray comes and he has his big spiel and she's like, "Oh my god, you talk like grown-ups." Um, <laughs> and I think that that's sort of a big part is that they use slang, but it's kind of a lot of it is like references to old things, like you know, she's such a Betty which is like obviously Betty Boop and sort of like, you know, all these kind of like older than them things. Whereas you have someone like, oh God, Amber, who has the big whatever moment, which I did not know that whatever came from Clueless when I originally saw it at uh, 13. And, okay. Well, no, because I was... I, no, I'm saying, is that true? Was what was what Clueless the first kind of whatever? I don't, I think it might have been. Wow, interesting. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm making this up. I just read this passage today in the book, so that's why I'm spouting this off. But I, I, I gather Heckerling said it actually came from the gay community when she was hanging um, around the gay community. But it was certainly not a, a mainstream thing. Mm -hmm. Like, she made it main, mainstream with that movie. With the W, like, Amber holding yes. it under her chin. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Okay, um, that, like, completely changed. That one scene completely changed teenage parents. Oh, yeah relationships for generations to come i don't think as if ever really caught on it's a little valley remember gag me with a spoon oh gag me with a spoon oh my God. it's as it's really but i've heard as if like are people saying it ironically like i'm gonna say this cute thing like like cut it out or um I can i do that or whatever I don't think that I've ever heard anyone, at least among me and my friends, use it like as if, although maybe, maybe we say it as a joke. In my but experience, I, if someone says as if, it's clearly referencing Clueless. This is true. I, th I think I've heard it removed, but I, I could be completely make it. I mean, that's why Jen, Jen Chaney took it as the title of her book, is it's like right. still recognizable as yeah. the Clueless thing. It, exactly. is, it is the, if you were going to pick one kind of phrase, I would say that people is most recognizable, it would be as if. Oh, yes. As if and you have to shake your hands like she well, does too and that's like, another that's another scene that sort of you read differently i think in a post weinstein world but kind of in a normal way and that when the guy comes and like gets on her and she like shoves him the fuck off yeah. she's like oh my god get the fuck away from me she um, has so much power though it's so great right mm -hmm. because i don't know i just love that i loved rewatching it i'm so glad that i had the excuse to do it yeah um, <laughs> me too. Episodes. it was so enjoyable yeah. Maybe I'll do that. So for my bachelorette party, one of the things we're doing is watch, just going to like watch some crazy movies after a crazy, like boozy burlesque brunch. Maybe Perfect. I'll make clueless one of them. I, I mean, I always endorse that because I truly think it is one of the best movies. I like, I love it so much. And I think that it's because it's sort of this combination of like everything that I love 
in pop culture in that it's like, you know, it's kind of poppy and it's fun and it kind of doesn't take itself too seriously, but then there's a lot under the surface. So it's just very much like I, and it's also like very romantic, which is another thing that I'm super into. Yes. It's all the things I love in one little package movie. Oh my God. I love Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that effective moment with the fountain going behind her (laughs) is the most effective Emma loves Mr. Knightley moment that has ever been uh, recorded. And and that's hard to get. Like it's it's hard to get. All right, ladies, do you think we should maybe wrap this up? Is there anything you really wanted to say that we haven't gotten a chance to say, Ellie? Um, I don't think so. I think I got over all my points about why I think this is the best movie ever. And I Uh do. And I mean, I guess I I think it's the best Jane Austen adaptation personally, because I think that it sort of gets at her core and her themes um, really well. And I, I talked a little bit kind of about I think that, you know, Amy Heckerling just had this really good understanding of kind of Austin's themes and core and sort of the fact that she was this writer that sort of wrote about these kind of, you know, they were, they were kind of like smart and intellectual thing. I mean, they were, but she also sort of had this side to her that wasn't as serious, which is my personal favorite side to Jane Austen. Like, I love the fact that she like had her dead baby joke. Um, oh, and, oh yeah, that exists. You're talking about she's, her letters? Yeah, the, there's a joke where she makes a dead baby joke. Yeah, she, she's like, oh, you know, my, that, that woman was brought to bed of a dead child. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps she saw her husband unawares or something. Yeah, yeah you know, I love is that. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yes, that is. I love that she one time made a dick joke. That is a personal favorite Jane Austen thing about me. And like, so I think that this movie just this sort of really good job of kind of like, not taking it too seriously, but then also managing to be actually pretty faithful and accurate to the source material where it matters. It's a great adaptation. And I mm-hmm. think it's really helpful for people who are not ready for Austin, Austin, mm-hmm. but might then it might enjoy Austin in a, in a dressed up modern guys, like Bridget right. Jones diary, um, which we also mm-hmm. have to do a podcast. I was going to say, I, Vincent, should we do a commentary for Clueless? Someday. We could do a commentary for Clueless. I, I don't know. I don't know that there's that aus- much Austin-esque stuff to say, like, in the mm-hmm. moment. It's probably more distraction than the movie. I would, however, love to do a movie review of Bridget Jones' Diary. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sounds good. I, well, Bridget Jones' Diary, also a classic. Um, also but I, a classic. I love it. But I also think that it, it is a super good way to get into it. And, like, just from my personal experience, I saw Clueless, you know, when I was, like, a preteen or whatever. And then... I watched Emma and like watching Emma, I was able to make those connections and I was able to be like, oh, this makes sense. So that when I finally read Emma was, and that was the first Austin that I ever read. Um, So it has a special place in my heart, even though it's not my favorite, but because of that, it like flowed very seamlessly because I had this foundation of this movie that I got and it, it does follow the plot more than you kind of would first think. Well, any other new business or old business but we've recorded this podcast so close to the other that we haven't actually gotten any new emails or new messages or anything uh so we don't have anything to talk about at the wheat chief i don't think yeah the wheat chief is sadly empty although Kristen should be getting my save the date soon in her mailbox congratulations by the way oh thank you it's very exciting Alrighty. well good uh, we just love everyone. We love thank everyone. You so much Happy Hanukkah. Happy, Happy holidays. Happy oh, yeah, Mazel Tov. 
And thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ellie. This has been super fun. Yes, thank thank you you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love any opportunity where I get to talk about Clueless and call it like productive work. (laughs) It's the best movie ever and you should all watch it. Everybody should watch it. (laughs) Hopefully they haven't made it through this podcast and our other Clueless podcast without watching it at least once. All right, Kristen, what do we say? All right. We have, dear listeners, gentle listeners, we have delighted you long enough.